ora and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. This is episode 24, the fourth of six interviews from this year's Aotearoa Institute Conference. I mean to have British architects who have recently become wrapped up in some controversy around a building his firm designed and occupies in Clarkwell in London. Areas in the planning process has opened the door for its potential demolition and predominantly on aesthetic grounds. We start to talk to Amin about his building, which is also his home, but he later delves into how his practice works. And then later on he owns me as an oversimplifying journalist. That's right. For those Stay tuned for that. <laughs> for those of you who have been waiting for this episode, this is the one where Jeremy gets owned. <laughs> and Matthew loved it. Anyway, he starts by talking about his own house, which, as Matthew said, is now threatened bizarrely with demolition, and he explains some of that saga. And the house, we should say, I guess, is a multi-storey um, commercial and apartment building in Clerkenwell in London. Matthew and I are here with Amin Taha from London. Welcome, Amin. It's really great to have you here in New Zealand. I wanted to ask you first about the most irresistible subject that um, probably everybody wants to ask you about at the moment, and that is... Um, that was the flight over here. <laughs> <laughs> Which way did you go? I was actually, via LA or...? <laughs> I was actually thinking 15... Oh, you went via LA. <laughs> <laughs> Never do that again. Especially with a shutdown. Right to Christopher. Well, because of the shutdown, we had two and a half hours oh. of queuing, going through immigration. Oh. Uh, that was painful. I bet. Because they were telling us before, and you'll have two and a half hours in, in the um, Air New Zealand lounge where you've got all sorts of goodies and rest, and maybe even have a shower if they've got one, but no. You were in a queue. We were in a cattle queue, <gasps> um, carefully controlled cattle queue for two and a half hours. I'm so sorry for that. On to the next question. Yeah. Um, we wanted to ask you about your own home yeah, and office. I haven't managed to avoid that one. No. <laughs> it's really interesting because the building, to me, looks beautiful and, all, more importantly, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to give our listeners a background on that project the controversy and, and the, the controversy that's the, resulted the controversy. from it? I'll try and be as quick as possible because I'm not sure how long your podcast is. But, um, oh, we're aiming to do about 20, 25 minutes. Yeah, so, you know, the, the full story is obviously... Like all these stories, the, the, it's far more complicated than it actually sounds. Uh, or you might read. Um, but in short, um, our case officer, planning case officer, who approved it by delegated powers, which basically means the authority given to him as a planning officer to do it on his own without having to go public consultation, had taken our scheme through a number of iterations, design iterations, um, and approved them all. Um, and then when we decided, actually, we this is the final version we like, uh, in hindsight, um, if we wanted to fully avoid any any future possibility that it might be challenged or, or have an enforcement put against it, he could have suggested using a Section 73A application instead of just doing it by delegated powers, because that application means it goes to public consultation. As a result of going to public consultation, it would have meant that any neighbour, which is essentially what happened later on, uh, who uh, uh, wasn't aware that the stone building had been approved, could have at least gone to the record and found that there was an application for stone through Section 73, and the other neighbours knew about it, and therefore not complained. However, because that process didn't happen, it was all done by delegated powers, and our case officer retired, and all his paperwork <laughs> wasn't um, uploaded onto the system, but actually archived somewhere. Not only did a neighbour uh, not know about it, never been alerted to a change from brick to stone, but when he went online and looked for it, couldn't find it. 
and therefore, probably quite legitimately, really, was under the impression, well, this is completely rogue, maniac architect who's built something without any approvals. Um, so, I mean, that's how the 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 initial, if you like, um, decision by a case officer, and the, then the later error of it not being uploaded. Uh, none of which, uh, none of us knew about that because he'd retired and. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I don't even know that you had to upload these things. I just thought once it's a paper record and it's all been stamped, that's fine. It's it's sort of lost in the bureaucracy of, uh, of the planning system. How that then, that sort of sl small error, if you like, of not uploading, not um, allowing the public to see it, a snowballed into a local councillor also convinced it can't possibly have approval. Um, going to the press with an enforcement notice because he was aiming to become head of planning, um, um, uh, 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 head of uh, planning committee, and therefore was all helping his um, uh, cause. Uh, how that then snowballed into you know yet another error, and me not being particularly political, uh, just simply um, uh, writing emails and then, um, if you like humiliating them in the press because um, obviously all the documents were there, they just had to look for them, and especially as he, wanting to become head of planning committee ultimately, uh, uh, also calling himself an architectural technologist, um, had gone to the architectural press as well as the national press as well as the local press and told everybody, apart from this being stone instead of brick, as an architect slash technologist, I know f for fact that this is all fake stone doesn't hold the building up, all these fossils that he talks about are all being hand-carved in, I witnessed them being hand-carved in. Oh, none so, of that is true, right? Well, of course, it's complete nonsense mm. and a, a huge embarrassment to him. And uh, it didn't, doesn't, all I had to say was any first-year student could tell that this is you know, stones, pieces of real masonry holding up the building, mm. and who the hell would carve fake fossils into a piece of stone? Uh, but that was enough to sort of embarrass him and um, various um, enforcement officers as well. So they withdrew the notice once they've got all the paperwork. Um, but um, yeah, this is my fault for not being particularly political. I'd sort of threatened to see them all and gave them invoices for wasting my time, etc. So about nine months later, they issued another one saying, well, we concede that you're right. We issued um, an approval for stone, but we never knew the fossils were going to be that prevalent. It all looks very ugly to us. And so please demolish anyway. Yeah. Please demolish. Oh, well, I wasn't pleased. Just demolish. <laughs> Demol polite. Demolish and clear away the rubble and leave us a clear side. That's pretty much what it says on the bottom of the notice. It's interesting because it sounds like it's coming down to a question of aesthetics. Well, since then, um, they've again, the argument has, has shifted from aesthetics because they're heavily on the idea that it was fossils or ugliness of the stone. And because the argument then came out saying, well, how can anybody call fossils a natural material ugly? It's principally because as a culture, as a, an architectural culture, let alone um, public culture, we're so ill-educated, ill-informed about what natural materials are, we've dealt, we're, we're using and dealt and experienced artificial materials so, so uh, ubiquitously that um, we don't understand these natural materials. We don't understand that they don't come in a uniform finish and a predictability. Mm. Um, uh, and therefore, uh, firstly, we look at them and think, well, 
what the hell is it? Is it and it could potentially be ugly to us as a, as a first response, uh, let alone actually there's no predictability to it in terms of its actual result on the facade. So those two combined, um, the debate that followed on after they initially said, this is hideous to look at. Uh, and then since then, the, 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 the argument has shifted yet again, and they set all that aside, and now they're concentrating on, uh, I think, it, almost 90% of the argument is now what's called loss of employment space. So the building we had before uh, had a quantum of employment space. And sensibly, any planning policy is, if you're going to demolish a building, please don't lose that employment space, but at least give us exactly the same back, and then improve on the plot anyway. So we gave a little bit more back and some flats. But because it's our own office, um, and this is really planning minutiae, the law, uh, the minutiae of planning law, since it's our own office, we haven't built it all out. You know? So we've got big double height spaces and bits of steel beams floating in midair waiting to take joists to take more floor space when we want to expand into it. But because we haven't built that out and you, you measure the current situation, we're about half of what we should be providing. You know? uh, so they're using that as you're your under-providing. Which is absurd, of course, but uh, under planning law, you can you can pull that one, as it were. Yeah. And yeah. you're on a... Do I see something that was the 4th of April? There's another hearing? Or is, you've got... I mean, well, the, no, the initial... Forward. Because ultimately, the once they put that notice in, you can't ignore it. Um, you have to get serious about it because up to then I'd just been ignoring him thinking this is absurd you know at some point that somebody the planning department and the enforcement department are in the same building they are separate departments but somebody surely from enforcement will walk across the corridor and just look in the paper file yep and if they can't find the paper file it's an archive ask for it to be taken out of archive because any member of the public is allowed to do that mm. and they give you a few days and you go into a room and there's the archive hard copy uh, so I'd been ignoring it up to then, just firing off letters and emails, um, saying, just get on with it, you incompetent lunatics. Uh, <laughs> uh, but as soon as the enforcement happens, you have to take it seriously, and you get a solicitor involved, specialist, etc. And uh, uh, and you, in that process, you're appealing it. Right. The appeal isn't an absolute fixed date, because all the dates, everyone's diaries, the inspectorate diaries, so the, 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 the inspector is... Uh, central government, as it were, um, his, his or her diary have to um, align with everybody else's diary. So initially they thought it was going to be February, then March, then April, and now it turns out to be the first week of July. So yeah. The building has won yeah, yeah, an yeah, RIBA yeah. award yeah. and others, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it seems yeah. there's an interesting disjunct there between the attitude of the architectural profession and the less positive attitudes of a couple of neighbours and perhaps a planning yeah, yeah, officer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's not even, you know, planning, I've got nothing wrong with, nothing against the planning department, uh, you know, apart from maybe some, um, uh, you know, they should, could have been better with their record keeping, um, uh, uploaded it, and that, this would never have occurred. Had all that information been online, the day a neighbour saw, mm. when the scaffolding came down, saw the stone, and they just went immediately the next day up on online or that evening, none of this would have occurred. Mm. Yeah, It's just because none of it was available. And literally, I think there's still one drawing missing, but the, the stone elevations didn't become available online until November, late November last year. So that's already two and a bit years after the first neighbour started that... Um, 
you know, wor worrying that, that it was an illegal building. So it's just crazy, isn't it? So, um, so is this is this bureaucracy sort of? Of course, it, it, yeah, it yeah, is. It's complete. I mean, it's mostly bureaucracy, but obviously, what it's what it's done is drawn in debates about um, all sorts of things, uh, aesthetics. Mm. Um, who are we designing for, passers-by, whoever they are, quotation marks, or um, other architects. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's pulled all sorts of other subjects together, conflated them into what ultimately really was a bit of um, bad record-keeping. Yep. All this aside, what are you enjoying about living and working in the building that you made? Uh, Yes. Um, well, you know, you, you have to box the, the situation yes. away, otherwise you drive yourself quite mad. Um, and then, of course, living and working in your own building, you're dealing with the snagging issues on a daily basis. So that's another box you have to set aside. <laughs> and then try to enjoy the um, enjoy the building. Yeah, no, of course, you you know, you've designed it because you know you're going to be living and working there. Uh, and it's great for clients to see how you work and. Um, what you do, uh, so uh, put your money where your mouth is, as it were, mm. and then similarly living in, in, in that sort of environment that you des normally design for others, um, and then seeing whether it works for you, and experimenting a little bit. Mm. Yeah. And it has worked for you in that sense? Yeah, yeah, I think, um, I think uh, if we had more space, I would have experimented a bit more, but yeah, it's, it's worked. Yeah. It's still, you know, you're now thinking of the next project. <laughs> mm. We'll see how long we can settle in that one. Has the notoriety resulted in extra work for you in any way? <sighs> maybe some, maybe some. I was got an Italian project, and there was an Italian journalist who interviewed us not long ago who said, um, out of, um, and you always take what Italians say um, seriously because their culture's been around for a while, isn't it? Um, who said, out of every catastrophe, there's an opportunity. How are you taking advantage of this opportunity? And I was just miserable as I'm uh, not sure whether I could take advantage of any opportunity, but perhaps it has resulted in some, perhaps, yeah. Possibly not in Islington? Probably not in Islington. It's <laughs> a good, good point. I don't think we've had a planning, um, planning application request in Islington since. And, and that used to be most of our work. Right, based. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've talked um, in an interview I was reading about being liberated from modernism, and <laughs> you're rolling your eyes. Well, liberated from every ism, as it were. Yeah, yeah one should be. We're living in a postmodern, you know, condition where none of us should be um, um, restricting ourselves to a, um, an ism. Yeah. So, how would you describe your approach if no. not using an ism? I see. Well, are you both trained architects, or are you I'm not. Matthew is. You're a trained architect. I'm a journalist. You're a journalist. Were you trained in art history or anything? Or? English literature. Literature, okay, fair enough. He's That's pretty so. much an architect. Yeah. But um, the, um, your training, your, your university training, as it were, um, is probably the same as it has been for a long time. Um, while architecture, I think, probably since the 70s at least, is, um, has tended to... Uh, deconstruct what used to be a sort of classical education, um, yeah, which included monism, i.e. there is a monoculture of what you are learning and what you're expected then to produce. Um, and 
Oh, well, it depends which country you're in, I guess, mm-hmm. and even sometimes a school of architecture within within one country. So I think the idea of um, us being um, taught in one way, expected to produce in one way, hasn't existed in, in architecture for a while. And um, so I'm always surprised if architects ask that question. I'm not surprised at all if um, journalists, um, art historians, history of architecture opinion makers, critics ask that question because they are still trained in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll see in tomorrow's talk that um, my position is more asking you the question, why the hell are you still asking that question? And it's basically because you're still trained in, to think that way, mm-hmm. which is a perfectly natural result. It's what we all, as human beings want to do. There's a taxonomy to everything. We want to categorize that to, to rationalize, understand it better because it allows us to progress our next idea better. Um, so consequently, we want to do the same when we first see, in your case, architects and the, what they produce. Uh, so very from very early on, when we had our practice, um, a, a, a journalist from building design literally doorstepped the practice on our first project, but we didn't want to talk about it because it had gone design and build, it was totally out of our control. Uh, halfway through the process, it was sold again to another client, by which time we had absolutely no involvement with it whatsoever. We'd only got the original planning application approved in Islington with the same case officer. It was our first ever project. Um, and did all the production information for construction. They tended it, the contractor was hired, but then dumped all our information once a new client came came along. So in that situation, a journalist came in saying, I love your new building. I was saying, well, it's very nice of you. And we tried to explain the situation, but they weren't interested in the sort of detail, literally the detail of what the building might look like to us, the matter. But they were more interested in why is it orthogonal and everything square? Do you, do you not like round things? It's such a primitive <laughs> way of asking questions and then immediately want to, wanting to categorize you as an architect. Mm. Um, uh, I thought there is, a, the, 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 there is a problem there with the people who are opinion makers or um, analysts of architects who aren't architects. Mm. Uh, so that was interesting because it, it occurred to me that... Um, the reason I call them opinion makers because there's a feedback loop then into architects because architects read all the magazines and, mm. um, and uh, if they um, if the education system hasn't allowed them to become critical of what they of what they do every day they think that is that is their education mm-hmm. yeah. uh, so consequently they feel ah oh, well perhaps I should be uh, well, probably not even conscious yeah probably not even consciously following a particular style, the next best thing that the magazines are all talking about, or maybe even the, the method of those architects that they're um, referring to, i.e. Uh, regurgitating the same product again and again, and it becomes the house style by which they are recognised. Yeah. I think that answers your question, mm. by your hand gesture. <laughs> you, you've resisted a house style, or, or your approach does not Yeah, exactly. I think, I think inevitably, if you, if you end up producing 50, 100 projects, there's bound to be a categorization to the methodology you apply that ends up with similar results that you can almost then have an internal taxonomy and, um, uh, and say there is a style there, a style, but hopefully not that predictable yet. Definitely not that predictable, I would say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, maybe, maybe at some point. Yeah. Yeah. There is an ongoing kind of theme of Materiality and, and yeah. enjoying the materials you're yeah. working with. Yeah. Does that come from? Yeah. Does that, where does that come from? 
Um, yeah, well, that question's sort of answered as well in the uh, previous discussion. So at tomorrow's talk, you'll see that um, one way of turning that question back to uh, uh, the questioner, that style, is that actually uh, it's only in the in the uh, mid 18th century the idea that um, style is a is a product um, as opposed to the process that produces the product uh, and therefore can be um, universally applied and then for everyone to master immediately um, uh, it's only then that it occurred and this is the result of um, Johann Winkelmann so uh, your 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 literature orientated but Art history really began with Johann Winckelmann in the mid um, mid 18th century. Prior to that, history of architecture and history of art was was uh, written by um, Vasari, Giorgio Vasari, about 200 years prior to that, so mid 16th century. He was an artist and architect, and he just um, uh, categorized, or rather, um, collated uh, as many Renaissance artists and architects as he could, people who had lived um, 100 or so years before him as well as his contemporaries, uh, put them all together in one book and called it the um, uh, uh, history of the most excellent artists, architects and sculptors, and included himself among, amongst them. And they were essentially biographies of each one, uh, speaking about um, how each one might have been apprenticed to, to, to another artist or architect and learnt their craft that way, but how each one of them might have innovated, taken from their uh, their master an idea, and then innovated it, changed it, developed it, and become master in their own right. And the, 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 that process then ends up with a product. And so therefore each one had a style, and the style was as a result of that process. While 200 years later, Winkelmann is part of the Enlightenment process, um, and he, his first book is, is, is essentially just um, the birth of archaeology as a, as a proper um, discipline. And he properly um, um, sets out a, a mapping of archaeological digs uh, and then works back, backwards and suggests how these, whether it's temples or sculptors, are re-erected. Uh, 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 and that is um, part art history uh, and archaeology, anthropology combined. And it's exactly what the Enlightenment was all about. It's the beginning of science, applying a, a sort of objective, um, empirical, scientific analysis of what you're looking at. Uh, but his second book, then, is, the, in his opinion, the uh, and that's how he titles it, uh, of uh, his thoughts on, um, on classical architecture and sculpture. And he specifically uh, differentiates the Greek from the Roman. And the reason he does that, you have to remember, it's the Enlightenment period. So during that period, you're, you're, you're looking, you're anti-monarchist, you're, you're, I don't want to say you're anti-religious, but you're beginning to think that human beings are the, can run their own affairs. As you're not having to be, the monarchy isn't God-given, it shouldn't be running your, your day-to-day affairs, uh, and neither should religion. Uh, you can, um, as in science is beginning to um, blossom, uh, you can you can run your own affairs, uh, and the Greeks did, uh, as opposed to the Romans. You know they were a bit more democratic than the Romans, and so he's beginning to conflate the Greek um, sculpture and architecture with Greek politics, 
especially during the Enlightenment period. It's entirely adopted by the Enlightenment um, uh, philosophers, and people just then apply the idea of the Greek style um, as a style. So remember, it's nothing to do with the people who created the style. It's not about the process of how they got there. They didn't even get there in one lifetime. They got there over several several millennia to the perfection that they reached. But adopting it as a final product with a political or moral uh, meaning and saying this is a style. Uh, it's not... And it's, from that yeah, point. exactly. Yeah. It's not really Vinkerman's fault, but what, what essentially happened is culture then adopts a style, a finish, a product. Um, and I think ever since then, culturally that's exactly what we've done so art history is inevitably then said that style the next art, art historians who are being educated and then finding themselves academically or in your position interviewing and then writing about it are saying well what is the next style that we categorize and put down and educate etc and generation after generation is exactly what happens and whether we need moral reasons for it or not more often we do it happens so you end up with um, with um, classically um, Ruskin and Pugin then in, 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 in England um, saying well why on earth are we building um, our churches and buildings of state in, in a neoclassical Greek um, or even Roman style they're, they're pagans after all they're not, um, they're not Christians uh, our greatest Christian period building period was the Gothic um, and consequently we get the Gothic revival um, and then modernism with its post-war ambitions uh, Etc. So, uh, so is it fair then to say that your practice is focused on process? Sorry, I'm, 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 this is a very, very, very long way, winded way of answering your materiality <laughs> That's question. Right. That's okay. <laughs> but you're quite right. I'm glad you've been paying attention because I lost the thread. <laughs> uh, Yes, exactly. So, um, um, if we go back to Giorgio Vasari and how his biographies tell us how each of those artists and artists and uh, uh, sculptors and architects uh, worked with materials and innovated within those materials, and that process produced a style, that's essentially uh, how I'd argue that probably most architects, I'd like to think mm. most architects, um, 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 undertake their process. Yep. It's it's it, it, because the material is intrinsic to the to the process of architecture. I, you're not applying a two-dimensional um, um, idea initially as a, as your design, mm. from which somebody else is telling you um, this is how we're going to build it. But you actually understand those materials, and you know those materials are going to hold up your building as well as becoming the finish. Yep. Uh, that process then intrinsically or inevitably leads to the material being the sort of experience at the same time. Yeah. And it, I mean, that's certainly evident that, that Quirkwell Place, close, is it close or place? Close. Where it is it is all, it is, it yeah. is finished, yeah. it is structured. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Could I ask you to apply what you've been talking about to describe the process that went into the building of the Upper Street yeah. building, which is fascinating and yeah. in some yeah. ways feels disruptive. So, yeah, so some some projects are, are more um, um, expressively um, structure, evidently structure narrative, even if there's a sort of historical um, or cultural um, um, part to them. 
they didn't speak that immediately. Upper Street is, uh, is this the same structural narrative exists, but there the cultural narrative is, is much more um, expressed. Could you describe that building? Yeah, so um, Upper Street is uh, part of a, 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 a terrace that is actually a Victorian near-Palladian form. So essentially what they've done is um, built a terrace of shops and houses, so a shop fronts with the flats above for the shop owners. So this is obviously in the mid-19th century, uh, but done in a, in a, in a neo-Palladian style. So the front, the, the central piece has a pediment on it, uh, then there are wings and then two end pavilions, as it were, very Palladian in that sense. During the Second World War, the, one of the end pavilions was bombed and it remained as a gap site until um, our client bought it um, about four or five years ago. They held a competition with uh, four or five other architects and uh, we'd already gone through um, a similar brief, a number of similar sort of situations where uh, something had been bombed or was partly existing and a new building had to come and the temptation is always there uh, to rebuild, try and rebuild exactly what was there beforehand because it makes intact what was missing. And of course you have that internal debate, a broader cultural debate, they clearly you can't literally rebuild it under new building codes and you don't have the same skills anymore, the same materials don't quite exist anymore, certainly not allowed to put them together in the same way anymore for all sorts of reasons, whether that's literally practical stuff like fire and um, thermal um, uh, purposes, regulations, etc., as well as cost purposes. You can't do that. Um, do you therefore do something that's highly contemporary and different to accentuate the difference between the two? Well, that's a narrative that's been done many times before, and we realise, well, we're on, uh, up against four or five other architects. They're all going to be doing exactly that. We will do exactly that. It's going to be very hard to choose between that. And we've all got two weeks, which is really I about ideas as opposed to finished product. We have done this exercise before, why don't we apply a similar idea, which is essentially to say, uh, here is a ghost of what was there before. Mm. Uh, the ghost is really um, a reconstruction. We call it a ghost because it's not the real thing, it's a representation. Um, and really you're, you're writing a narrative in the same way that you, you created monument. So it's something to the past where you're recreating the past. Is it nostalgic? Is it, has it got a certain agenda? Uh, you start talking about, um, uh, really you're beginning to be in the same the same um, territory as monument building because you're recreating something that was there that uh, has got public presence so it has a public engagement um, so what are you telling the public when you recreate that um, and it occurred to us that actually monument building narratives mythologies that we use day to day uh, we, we interestingly people have been talking about that today already and Obviously, New Zealand is, 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 um, is, um, uh, seems to have quite a seems to be quite a strong vein in in the country compared to the UK. I mean, you might think we've got our mythologies, but we don't really take them that seriously. Some of them we have to; we don't have a choice. But we don't day to day. Well, I think here you do. Hmm. Um, uh, so for us, I mean, especially with you can imagine, say a few years back, there was this whole idea of and still probably exists in, and more strongly in the UK than perhaps other areas, monument um, 
pulling down monuments. So you know that Cecil Rhodes, Greater Rhodesia, is a great hero to a certain generation. A certain generation are actually were educated that Cecil Rhodes is one of those adventurers, British adventurers that went colonialists who went um, abroad and created um, societies abroad. Um, so obviously um, his monuments as well as the country has been renamed. In, in the UK we've got the difficulty that some of the colleges have still got his statues up and as a generation clearly have not had any of that education at all and don't see him as a, you know, they, they, there's enough historical evidence to, to, for them to realise he's, he's, he's an anti-hero to some degree that they want to pull that monument down who are now arguing with the generation who were educated in that way uh, and at some point that monument will come down and we thought this is quite an interesting um, uh, narrative that we can express in that reconstruction uh, the recreation so it's, it's a, a narrative a monument to the past what was there before it was bombed uh, but uh, in those narratives, which are ultimately always flawed, aren't they? Because we're recreating narratives at that time to tell a particular story. Uh, now, the majority of people who create that story, that narrative, might believe in it, but there's always a minority that are clearly um, in conflict with it. And it might take several generations before everybody agrees that narrative is flawed and that monument needs to either come down or be repositioned in some way culturally. Uh, so we thought, okay, well, why don't we tell that story of how narratives are flawed? So you recreate the form, uh, but you choose a material that, yes, is structural, because obviously we have that DNA in us, that whatever you choose, if it has superstructure, uh, whatever that material is, uh, acts as finish at the same time. So you have to make a decision, well, if we're going to tell that story, and that material has got to be a structure and envelope, uh, what do we choose? Well, we went for pigmented terracotta concrete, um, and we've worked with concrete many times before, and, and there's, a, there's been for a very long time a obsession with making concrete absolutely perfect. And we all know, if you practice architecture, that you need to put about uh, 15 to 20 percent of the concrete budget aside for concrete repairs, because clients expect it to be perfect. It's not a material that wants to be perfect. And we thought that's the material we choose because we'll allow the imperfections of the material how it wants to be to tell the story how the narrative is imperfect. No narrative is perfect. Plus, so that's not just the material, the mixture of the concrete and how it's poured on site, but also how the formwork is put together, who makes the formwork, how they bring it on site, how they put the formwork together. All of those have got potential errors and flaws in them. Add all those together, subtly the building will then tell the story how I've recreated the old, here is the old, but as, as you look at me more carefully, I'm telling you why I, I've got failures in me and, and why my narrative is actually flawed. Nice way of dissolving the narrative a little bit too, isn't it? It's a, it you, because you don't try to control all of the aspects of it, the, the end product is not necessarily... Um, you know, it's not a crisp thing, it's yeah. not a well-defined thing, it's yeah. something which has... Yeah, so the, the narrative changes before it's even... And even completed. So. Yeah, yeah. One last question: How do you feel about Brexit? <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Yeah, I, I shared a flat with um, um, a Kiwi um, when I was uh, younger, after, just after graduating, and she was um, she worked for the New Zealand Dairy Marketing Board, mm. and um, 
Yeah, I think back. Yeah, I think back to her. She was quite a hard-nosed girl because she had to do a lot of negotiations. And I think if we had to renegotiate our trade um, agreements with New Zealand, she's not going to say, "Oh, yeah, we'll give you exactly the same." Um, she she will take best interest of New Zealand, and that will be a harder a harder product than <laughs> than what we've got now through the EU. It's just so tragically naive and. Um, yeah, painful. Uh, we we um, you know people used to um, uh, not snigger, but um, found found it amusing that Turkey was trying to join the EU, but was stuck with the fact that a vast proportion of the population weren't urbanites. You know they were still rural, uh, very conservative, culturally conservative, politically and philosophically conservative. And effectively, they brought um, the current president into power, and are likely to keep that sort of political system um, in that state for a long time. And therefore, Turkey would would find it very difficult to join the EU. And then, well, what within within I guess I don't know maybe ten years at the most, we will discover actually we've all got those um, splits in society, haven't we? Mm. And that's essentially what so someone's taken advantage of that. Um, of those thoughts, those underlying thoughts um, that have always existed and opened them up and allowed political agency to those people that, 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 um, that hadn't had it before. As a consequence, we've got, we've got, um, got Brexit. Um, it's democratic, so you can't argue with that. Uh, of course, the irony of all these things is that um, it's those communities that will suffer more Afterwards, on the urbanites, because the 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 southeast and London and the, you know, the, what they call the metropolitan elite are always going to benefit from foreign investment, uh, because uh, previously, while Britain, London, etc., was um, the doorstep, the gateway to Europe for foreign investment, and now London will remain still an investment hub. But while uh, central government tried to um, um, decentralise that investment by saying, especially conservative government, because in the 80s they um, they decided to stop funding all the, pub, the you know the major industries and cause those communities to collapse. Uh, consequently, had to diversify investment and create car industries where there were none. So most of the car industries were still sort of south bits. Let's create them up north uh, with tax incentives and all the rest of it. You know, those those industries are sort of um, questioning, scratching their heads, thinking, well, why should we stay here now if we're going to be outside Europe? Um, and they'll suffer more as a result. The region, regions will suffer more. They're already moving, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's uh, very, very, um, very sad. But, uh, but that's um, the, the loss of, of skillful political rhetoric and debate and it being allowed to be taken, well, won essentially by... Um, by people who, who, um, who seem to be smarter. So you might not believe it, but you know people like Farage and others who managed to um, win the debate. Um, Sorry to end on a gloomy note. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. thanks. But in the meantime, have, have, you, have, you, have, you got, have you guys not got the similar sort of thing? Uh, not yet, anyway. Six. No, we don't. We have a, um, a, a left-wing coalition in government at the moment. At the moment, yeah. Mm. Is there any underlying, any problems, any social problems where at least 50% 50 of the country feel dissatisfied that you're complacent about now? 
There are some problems. There are there's a housing crisis yeah. that's pretty much yeah. nationwide. Is that that's an, it, but is that urban based housing crisis or is that a it's I- spreading? Mm. Okay, so that's a housing crisis. That's interesting. Our uh, affordable to buy rent. All of those things. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Which you're familiar with in London as well. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Jobs. But, Job unemployment is quite low. Yeah, okay. Four, three point something percent. Around there, yeah. Mm. You've got a population of four million or something. Five, yeah. five, is it? Oh, is it five? Yeah. Right. Exciting. Where the hell yeah, the other five. million just come from? <laughs> <laughs> right. Five. Yeah, yeah, sorry, you're welcome. No, no, it's yeah. very good. Thank you very much. A pleasure. And I hope you I look forward to hearing the talk tomorrow. Yeah. So. Jeremy, you quite like this building. Yeah, I mean, my opinion counts for nothing, but I think has the building he's talking about that is now threatened with demolition by this um, meddling and slightly bungling local authority, I think it's really interesting and beautiful because it's got a really rigorous stone... Well, it's got a really rigorous structure, which is very geometric, with this slightly haphazard hand-hewn stone acting as the structure on the outside. And I find it quite interesting because I don't immediately look at it and think it's beautiful. It's more of a, hmm, interesting response than a, ha, beautiful one. But I think it's um, very absorbing and trying to kind of unpick its aesthetic and work out whether you appreciate it or not is kind of an interesting process and an absorbing one. The interior shots I've seen make it look very beautiful. But also it doesn't feel like it's raising a middle finger in an anti-contextual way that's London Neighbours because you can definitely see relationships between it and the buildings around it but Matthew I'm getting the sense you're not such a fan <laughs> yeah I'm not a I'm not a fan of it I think I, I think it's it almost does the opposite of raising the middle finger in that it's almost sort of recessive in its statement it, it's almost sort of it's an unbuilding in many ways you know, it's oh so you're not keen because you find it a bit ugly uh, not even ugly you just find it a bit dull um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I find it interesting, I f- and and understanding how he works and how his practice works, I find I look at it in a different way as well. But um, look, if I, if I was to judge it on aesthetic grounds, yeah, I'd kind of think it'd be nice if it was tidied up. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not. Um, I'm not a massive fan of it. I've co- I'm interested in it from, I guess, from a. Um, from a theoretical point of view and a and a process point of view, and he talks about he didn't in, in talk we had with him, but he talks about this um, the stone and the way of making things, which uh, um, reduces energy and and. But I also wonder whether he is playing games a bit as well, and that's fine too. Um, playing games you, procedurally or with the design? Uh, I think I I I don't. I've got nothing to base this on, but. I wonder whether, I mean he did, he, this scheme was originally done in, in plate steel and then it was done in uh, brick and I kind of, that really sits ajar to how I understand him to work now and that I don't, I can't imagine him designing a brick building, it's kind of, it's particularly where the I've seen the elevations of it, it's not too dissimilar to that which is kind of an unbrick thing to do right, post and beam made out of brick, kind of doesn't you know, it doesn't ring true. So I I um I just wonder whether there are 
games being played, the fact that he now doesn't comply because he hasn't built all of the floor area within the building. Because if you are replacing a building um, which has commercial space, you must replace that commercial space in building the new building so there's no loss of jobs in the centre of London. Right, sounds good. So, but he hasn't built that floor area yet because they don't need it. Sounds like a good way of just having some double height spaces in a building which you've got plenty for. He's going to be all up in the comments of this podcast. Take yeah, I, look, I, I expect I'm wrong. Um, but, it, you know, I just wonder if whether, because um, he's um, clearly an academic individual and he's, um, I just wonder whether he's playing games, which is, as I say, is, that's cool. That'd be right. It's interesting, isn't it? You architects here in the group, in the room today, aesthetics is kind of, of course it's important, but how do we judge those? Because what he's rolling out here is not a kind of crazy pomo fantasia or anything that's offensive. It's, um, I would say, very thoughtful in the way it addresses its context. And yet you have the local council saying that it's an offence to their aesthetic values and that it should be demolished on those grounds. Well, you've got one person within council, probably, haven't you? Someone's mm. taken objection to it and decided that they're going to have a crack. In fact, by the time we this podcast goes to air, it may have been demolished. Yeah, he's appealing that. And he did say a decision is kind of imminent, but I can't find anything on Google that says when that decision is, and there'll probably be other appeals following it. But to come back to the aesthetics question, do you want, or is it appropriate, for a single council officer to be determining whether your building should stand or not because of the aesthetic taste of that person? Well, I think that's what makes the, the story interesting because that's, that's what is happening. One, one councillor decided it was okay because they had um, delegated powers and they were able to make that decision without going um, necessarily back to uh, the, um, the community. Um, and now you've got another one saying it's not okay. So that's, you know, I think that's the really interesting part of the story is, and it's something in, in a centre like London that you're facing every day, and the, um, the challenges can, designing anything in London um, are pretty <laughs> high. So the, um, the yeah, I think um, it's, uh, it's interesting because of that, and that's really the discussion this building is generating. I've got no, no um, qualm about this being a sort of thoughtful building, the aesthetic being the result of some real thought and consideration and and um, investigation. I think it's, you know, that just seems it's really clever. Um, I'm not sure if I like how it looks. It sort of relates um, to what we were talking about in our previous episode with Mai and Song. In some ways, it's like, how do we allow imaginative buildings in our cities? And in this case, what it seems like one neighbour who kicked off a complaint about the process not to um, take personal offence and thereby govern the aesthetic of an entire neighbourhood as a result. I don't know the answer to that question, but. Mm. It seems slightly frustrating the city sophisticated as London should be fighting these battles in this way. And the yeah. councils get very um, fearful of uh, an assumed public response, so they opt for a safe or stylistic um, response rather than something that is perhaps a little um, uh, deeper in terms of its uh, uh, research and, and uh, appearance. Mm. Well, and he talks about people making decisions here um, describe themselves as an architectural technologist. In fact, they didn't have any architectural training at all. And it's yeah, it's a, I think that the whole idea that there is this kind of um, you know, style judge sitting there somewhere deciding what 
um, the city should look like. I think that's a that's the discussion. No, mm. Look, I've got no, uh, I've got no problem with the building being built in the context. I think it's um, there's a no. I think that's what you can do. That's great. I think you should be able to do that. Um, I just I wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, why don't we um, take the risky step of um, asking for feedback from our listeners about whether or not they like the building or not. And we won't talk about it in future episodes if there's, very no, if there's no feedback whatsoever. Um, but if you do want to look up, I mean, Taha's building at 15 Clerkenwell Close and let us know if you think it should be demolished or not, or if you like it or not, that would be really great. Particularly if you work at Clerkenwell Council. <laughs> yep. They'll be listening in droves. <laughs> But yeah, thank you very much for listening to episode this episode of 76 More Rooms. So that's us from this episode. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much to the ZIA for their support um, and organising the interviews we've had with uh, these architects at the conference. Um, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.